What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people on the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Well, hello, listeners. It is hard to believe that it is already August, the middle of August. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're headed back to to school today, Cass. Yes. Yes, yes, I am. The summer just flew on by. (laughs) Yeah, and and it might not have been exactly the summer that we all had in mind or hoped for this year, but I do have to say, I feel so much better the other day when I opened a drawer and I rediscovered a whole cache of very fun and silly sunglasses that I usually reserve for wearing only at the beach. Because, I mean, some of them are super duper over the top. I have one pair that's crazy oversized. It looks like I'm wearing a white bow on my face. (laughs) I have red heart-shaped ones, which are some of my absolute favorites. I have purple cat eyes, um, and the lenses are purple. So it really kind of makes the world look oh so much more pleasant in this kind of crazy moment. Um, (laughs) And I just have to say, I felt so much better by just popping on a pair of really fun, silly sunglasses and heading out the door to run my errands for the day. (laughs) With your matching mask, mind you. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it is pretty incredible how a simple pair of sunglasses holds this somewhat magical power of transformation, right? I mean, there's really perhaps no other garment so closely associated with absolute chic and cool. And the fascinating dynamics behind one of the world's most beloved accessories is what our guest today, Vanessa Brown, is joining us to talk about. Vanessa is a senior lecturer of design, culture, and context at the School of Art and Design at Nottingham Trent University in Nottingham, England. And we are so pleased that she joins us today to discuss her book, Cool Shades, The History and Meaning of Sunglasses. Vanessa, welcome to Dressed. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your book, Cool Shades, The History and Meaning of Sunglasses. It was fascinating. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. Oh, good. So 
to talk about how you open up the book. Um, you open it up with a statement that, quote, sunglasses are a small thing. They are an accessory, an add-on to life. And yet your book really goes on to detail the myriad of ways that sunglasses are emblematic of modernity and also a key player in the construction of cool. So I'm curious, how did you first come to this topic? Well, I'd been interested in what it meant to be cool um, for a long time, probably since I had been an art school student doing my foundation course. And I'd noticed that there were an awful lot of very cool people around me. And I kind of also noticed that perhaps I couldn't cast myself in that role quite (laughs) as well. So I started thinking then really about what it was, what that quality was that they had and I, at that time, I did funny things like I remember doing some doodles of like little self-portraits of myself in my sketchbook, um, making myself look as uncool as I possibly could to try and exaggerate the qualities about myself that I thought might be, might be making me less cool than I could be or less cool than these other people. And one of the things that was there in those doodles was um, a broad smile and a kind of open expression. Mm. That was only one of the features, but that was one of the things that I sort of noticed and I thought, yeah, it's something about how you engage with others and whether you seem willing to engage with others. And then I didn't really think about it again after that. But then um, when I went on to do my master's, I started researching the way that objects within culture could perhaps mobilize different ideas in society that otherwise might be quite difficult to unpack. So I actually looked at the image of the housewife through um, Tupperware and responses to Tupperware boxes uh, and the way that that had been marketed. And I I was interested in the image of the housewife and I suppose post-feminist responses to that. So so, so when I was doing my master's, I sort of got into this idea that objects can reveal an awful lot about culture. So when I then um, moved on to thinking about my PhD, I was looking for a vehicle, another object that could be the key to unlock a whole set of values that are important. And I had a number of things in mind. One of the things I was interested in was uniforms. Um, and, and I was thinking about, I started thinking then about androgyny and about um, power, I suppose, within clothing. And then I had this um, funny experience when I was, I was actually teaching by then and um, I was moving. I went to decorate my new flat um, in the town where I was teaching and then on, I had to sleep there and when I was on my way back I was all in my decorator's clothes I hadn't washed but I realized I probably needed to pop into a shop to get some milk or something and pulled into the car park um, I was going home to the house that I was already in as I got out the car I absent-mindedly grabbed my sunglasses off the dashboard and walked over towards the shop. As I did that, I kind of thought, why have you done that? Why have you bothered? You look such a mess. Why have you bothered to try and sort of put the cherry on this terrible cake? <laughs> um, and, and then as I, as I approached the glass facade of the store, I could see myself 
And my reflection was quite reassuring. And I thought, oh, actually, that's made quite a big difference. And actually, far from looking a state, maybe I even look quite cool. And that instantly sort of made me laugh internally that I could fool myself that I had this quality just by putting on a pair of sunglasses. And then as I as I went then to the door, I realized that I, I felt compelled to put them up on my head. So they became kind of hairband. And after that, I started thinking more and more actually about what sunglasses meant and how they ha- had some kind of impact on my behavior when I was wearing them, but also on self-perception. And that that was just the key really to then starting to think about it. And as I started writing and thinking about it and looking at in- images, it just got bigger and bigger. And I realized there really was something there to say about coolness. So yeah, that was how, that was how I got to the topic in the first place. It's, it's really interesting because uh, as we uh, talk to many, many different people who, who are in this field of fashion studies or design history, design studies, um, when I always ask people about their origin story, a lot of times there is a sort of instant click or like this instant epiphany that happens. And, and, and your, your story about how you came to this topic is just kind of like continuing in that, in that same lineage. It's really fascinating. Yes, and actually, that was one of the things that I was interested in when I was doing my MA. I'd kind of noticed that in studies of culture, there's always this kind of hidden autobiography. And in my MA, I was interested in bringing that autobiography to the fore. And I didn't do that so much in this book, but I am very, I am very much in agreement that there there is often this very sort of personal connection that drives you to keep going. Mm-hmm. Dig a little deeper. Mm. Speaking of, I'm curious, when and where do we first see sunglasses being worn and in what context? Well, that's, that is a, actually quite a difficult question. And it was one of the questions that I started my study with, hoping that some historian had already done this work <sighs> for me. But unfortunately, they hadn't really. Um, and so there are, you know, there are instances in ancient history of various cultures using whalebone or maybe slivers of onyx, that kind of thing, as a kind of and coconut shell bone, as a form of sun protection or for glare from snow in very cold environments. But in terms of the kind of Western formation of sunglasses in the way that we know them today, um, it's also complicated because actually spectacles have a very strong visual resemblance to sunglasses early on because they tended to have tinted lenses. So often, actually, if you go to a museum and you see something labelled as a pair of sunglasses, it, it might not be um, because it was thought that tinted glass was much better to aid weak sight at the beginning. So, you know, you get glasses with, say, 16th century Green was a was a popular colour. And then in the late 17th to maybe mid 18th century, there are other things that are used in similar sorts of ways. Again, 18th century, that was really when the first kind of glasses that you could wear uh, balanced above your ears. They're called riding temple glasses. And actually, that technology of being able to actually keep them on your head was a problem for a long time for spectacles and sunglasses, but it's specifically relevant to sunglasses because many of the contexts in which we wear sunglasses, we're mobile and outside. Mm -hmm. So 
the need for them to stay on your head while you were moving was significant. And really, until quite late on, people were describing in some of the trade journals that I looked at ideas like um, just tying a strip of brown crepe material around your eyes if you were traveling on horseback or exploring being a you know an equally good protection against sun and grit um, that I mean that's as late as kind of late 19th century so just before the 20th century all the technology's there for it but it doesn't really ca- catch on so I guess the first time that you hear someone talking about sunglasses with that term even, Um, The first instances that I found were in some of the trade journals from the tens and the teens of the 20th century. Some of the manufacturers of glasses start referring to sun goggles and sunglasses, but always alongside multiple other names for the same sort of thing, um, like motor goggles, for example. So they were worn by drivers and by motorcyclists as well as sportsmen of different types. And I think that's something that we're going to touch on um, in a little more in detail, this connection between sports velocity and and the wearing of sunglasses here in a minute. Um, But before we move on to that, I was really surprised when I read your book to learn that the early history of sunglasses actually has a tie-in to dandyism. Um, Going back to the 19th century, which you were just speaking of, dandies weren't necessarily wearing sunglasses per se, as you mentioned, but some of those perhaps tinted eyewear, and they were wearing them as fashion. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this connection between eyewear as fashion and dandyism? I think that, um, I mean, I know that dandies did use um, quizzing glasses Mm -hmm. some of the time. And as I said, there were various different things like lorgnettes which are lenses on a handle that you can fold up and you kind of hold it in front of you and they use those things in very particular ways if they even if they didn't use them though they had ways of using their eyes and their gaze that really kind of lay the foundations for a kind of disdainful form of interaction and a performance of disdain for others that we could associate with coolness. I mean, just disdain, I suppose, sort of shades into a more positive quality of self-possession right. within the spectrum of cool demeanours. But certainly with it, with the dandy, it was very much and reported on by people like um, Barbie Doreville, for example, as very much this kind of, I mean, the brilliant terms used to describe their demeanour that absolutely sum up those boys at my art college that I, <laughs> I was looking at thinking a look of glacial indifference, this kind of absolute lack of need for somebody else. And one of the great anecdotes is that Bo Brummel, who was obviously one of the sort of main um, characters remembered for his dandyism, would arrive at a party or social gathering and he would then make a kind of sweep of the room um, and he would he would sort of affect this calm and wandering gaze as if you know there's nothing here to interest me and if nothing did catch his eye he would just leave so he would make this performance of coming into a social situation looking but almost kind of not looking not being bothered to really look unless there was someone that 
as they say, you know, flattered his vanity to have something to do with. And dandies used this as a means of social advancement. And Beau Brummel eventually became a, a, a friend of the Prince Regent, even able to sometimes insult the Prince Regent in, in society in, in front of others, which is an incredible feat. That status didn't last for him. And he did, you know, get his comeuppance later. But it is, you know, one of the uh, pre-20th century examples of how style and demeanour could really affect somebody's social status. And, and really this incredibly interesting and complex approach to the rest of the world and what was going on in the world as well. So authors have said that they had this kind of incredible calm in the face of uh, what's described as the agitations of modernity. Mm-hmm. So this idea of like the still body and the controlled gaze was all part of this performance. And I suppose things like the quizzing glass and whatnot, they could be used to dramatise the idea that somebody was or wasn't of interest to them. But also in any type of object that you hold in front of your face can work as a kind of involvement shield to use a phrase from the sociologist Irving Goffman that enables you to sort of play and perform the idea of how willing you are to engage with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the funny things I found in your book was I think you referred to the, the lorgnettes, a pair of lorgnettes as a dirty look on a stick. <laughs> yes, yes. Excellent. I mean, it's a, such a succinct way of describing it. And, and actually, there's a lot of those kinds of references. Another interesting thing is that these kinds of performances stretch on into the early 20th century. As I said, the lorgnette remained fashionable, partly, I think, because it had this kind of set of performances around status associated with it. But also there was a group of people called the uh, Dada Dandies um, in the Surrealist movement. And they, they didn't wear sunglasses, but they did use monocles. And sometimes they were described as a monocular dandy. And they use this, they they use these monocles, which have been described as icy butterflies. Oh, wow. Again, as this kind of rejection of what was going on currently, um, rejection of the craziness of the modern world. And so this ancient object is, is doing something similar, sort of playing with something in front of the eye that maybe suggests something about your detachment from what's going on and maybe your superiority to it, but also perhaps your different perspective. And I think that's something that comes through very strongly later on in the 20th century, through sunglasses particularly. Another role that you have noted that that may be closely related to that of the dandy is also the flaneur. And you have said in the book that the flaneur, quote, I'm quoting you, can be seen as a model for certain aspects of 20th century cool. I'm bringing this up since since you just touched on the 20th century. And you go on to say, the flaneur also has a very particular approach to seeing and being seen. So I'm hoping that you might be able to explain the construct of the flaneur and why was uh, he's so important of a figure in the fabric of urban life during the late 19th century and then kind of like setting us up a little bit for what happens in the 20th century. Okay, so the flaneur 
is a kind of poetic figure, a kind of ideal type from the cities of um, the late 19th century, specifically noted as being somebody who emerges within Paris and written about by Walter Benjamin and Charles Baudelaire as a kind of exemplar of the kind of person who feels entirely at home in the new kind of chaotic environment of the city. And at this point, you know, Paris hasn't been housemanized, so it's still a labyrinth of streets. There's this kind of sense of um, that there's a lot of activity going on, but it is quite kind of chaotic and the increase in anonymity. So whereas maybe the dandy um, moved in social circles that followed a fairly sort of courtly structure, you kind of knew who was in that society. And yeah, you'd meet the occasional person that you didn't know. The flaneur is very much a person in amongst a whole load of people that they don't know. And they revel in the idea of their own anonymity. And the flaneur was described as a poet or an artist as well. So typically these might be people without a profession, except to sort of soak up culture and reflect it back to others, um, usually male as well. And there's interesting sort of debates about the extent to which women can inhabit the role of both the dandy and the flaneur. Um, characterised very much by this idea of them sort of strolling around the city, feeling no compulsion to actually stay with anybody or engage in any meaningful encounters, but simply soaking up the sights and making of it whatever they wanted. So there's this idea of them as being like a sovereign spectator, somebody who looks and owns the gaze, but does not necessarily have to bother about the fact that people might be looking back. And so I suppose this is quite close to the idea of the voyeur. Mm -hmm. And again, there was this element of um, stability and being at ease within this otherwise potentially quite threatening and confusing environment. And that that was sometimes symbolised. I think this is a really lovely analogy as well by taking um, a really slow pet for a walk in a really busy place. So they might, there's a famous kind of mythology about somebody having a lobster on a lead or a turtle. And this was a performance of the fact that while everyone else is rushing, they are not, they are strolling, which is the literal translation of flaneur. Mm. So I think I mean, one of the other things about them is that they have been described as kind of a tragic or heroic figure. And we see this idea of coolness being both a tragic and a heroic state. Many of our heroes are cool, but at the same time, many of those heroes meet tragic ends or uh, fundamentally can't connect socially and they have like troubled lives socially. So, yeah, so this, this is the idea of the flaneur. In terms of how they, how they look and how sunglasses might relate to them, I think some imagery of flaneurs does depict them. Uh, they may be described as um, wearing tinted spectacles. But, again, the value to thinking about how sunglasses became important and to seem useful and to have some kind of um, connection with a growing form of subjecthood the fashionable kind of subjecthood um, is really about the way they looked and the fact that they were quite happy to have their gaze kind of cut off. And it, it was by movement, really, that they did that. 
um, by moving through space and by failing to really rest on anything and engage with anything. I am so glad that you just used this word movement. <laughs> Earlier, you used the phrase, the chaos of the city. So this period that we're kind of talking about right here of the late 19th century, it was it was one of vast cultural change. You know, we see the expansion of the middle class, thanks in part to great strides in science and technology, which in turn led to the Industrial Revolution, which then in turn produced all sorts of wonderful new inventions. It also made possible for the first time mass production of goods at scale. And and it seems that people at this time were very cognizant and perhaps even a bit suspicious of this sort of quickening of the pace of life. So kind of big picture, how how did people regard consuming these increasing amounts of external stimulus that are now surrounding them and also all of this new technology. Yeah, I mean, in my book, I think I kind of try to sum this up as a kind of onslaught. It's, it's kind of like a, an attack from all sides. Not only have you got all of these new stimuli, but also as fashion, you know, the speed at which fashion start to develop is just unrecognizable in comparison with how with the pace at which fashion's changed prior to that. And I think the thing about fashion is that every time it changes, it asks you to change as well, or at least it asks you to question whether how you were yesterday is good enough today. So this, this sense of kind of unease to the sense of self, but also this kind of incredible sense of possibility opening up of social mobility I think it it led to, you know, an explosion in terms of people displaying themselves in public spaces, a sense of identity that was changing as well. So, you know, um, various sociologists have sort of noted the way in which cities opened up the idea of more niche ways to be. If there aren't many of you in your village or your small town who have a strange quirk or you'd prefer to be a certain way, there's not many of you and you could be ostracized in that setting. But in a city, the more likelihood that you might come across some other people who've got those kinds of predilections as well. So a lot of difference flourished and that then becomes part of this challenging spectacle as well. Added to that, you've got actually the kind of rapidly increasing amounts of traffic on the streets and the possibilities of rail travel as well which are significant to the history of sunglasses because um, really it was on the railways that they were first worn when the carriages were open and you needed some protection from not only sun but also soot and sparks. So a lot of the oldest forms of um, tinted glasses that are not also um, going to enhance your vision are for uh, use by passengers on the railways. And there there was um, some really great concepts came forward, like um, George Simmel's idea of the um, blasé response to the metropolis. Um, he, He said that in the face of all this, there can only really be two responses. One, the blasé, where every you become deadened to everything. And so in a way, it encourages this kind of flaneur like perspective in all of us. The only way to cope is to kind of cut a lot of it off and to act as if it isn't there or to become even, um, there's a thing about sort of becoming almost like hardened 
to these stimuli as well. Um, and the other option, he said, was to become neurasthenic. So you would become so anxious that it would be almost impossible to live. And actually, there's a really interesting um, history of particularly this would be discussed around women becoming like a bag of nerves and there were nerve tonics and all of that. But there were also these cool women. I came across this being used as a way to describe the women of Greenwich Village, the kind of flapper communities of the early 19, early mid 1920s, cool and detached demeanor, which is a sort of a form of survival mechanism, really, perhaps in this in this context. So interesting that um, sunglasses were implicated in so many of these new inventions and these quite frightening and challenging experiences of hurtling at speed, multiple media thrown at you, um, multiple strangers encounters with them. So sunglasses were in, implicated in them because they were things that you wore as an accessory to those activities, mm-hmm. which made them seem cool in that sense of up-to-date and modern. But also they had this other capacity to actually protect you from some of this sensory overload. And the first way that you mentioned in terms of like um, being practical and, and traveling at high speeds with all of these new modern technologies, that of course would be one of the reasons why some of the first people to adopt them would have been sportsmen and women. Um, so, so shades can serve a very practical purpose, of course, but I'm hoping that you might expand upon what you just said is in terms of like how they might protect you from some of that external stimulus. Would you speak a little bit about the gaze and the act of looking and and being seen in the context of of concealing one's eyes and how that could also be yet another form of protection? Yes. Well, I think, um, I mean, there are some quite interesting images, for example, maybe, you know, really before you might expect to see these kinds of images in popular culture, documentary photographers, like Walker Evans, for example, a documentarian who took many images of American um, cities. There are some images that show women in their sunglasses walking around the town. Is it sunny? Are they wearing them out of habit? Because it's kind of way of giving you this little extra sense of protection. And in, in the trade journals that I studied um, in the, I mean, I looked at trade journals from the end of the 19th century, right up until the 1960s, British and American ones. And it was really interesting to see sort of discussions of the optical professions talking about how people were uptaking these things. And there was quite a lot of concern that people, once they'd tasted sunglasses, were very Um, reluctant to take them off. So people were starting to wear them while they were shopping. Um, Later on in the century, they were wearing them while they were um, watching television. Um, And as you know, as we know, um, people started wearing them indoors as well, which is something that we might come on to a bit later. So I think ordinary people who were wearing them against sunlight, maybe through sunbathing, they, they, they started to realise that it ha- they had this very handy secondary function in that setting that made them useful in all kinds of circumstances. But very, um, I think very significantly, um, this had particular pertinence 
to certain groups. And one of those groups might be the kind of emerging Hollywood celebrity, mm-hmm. especially the female ones. So there are some really amazing stories about how with the emergence of the paparazzi, which was obviously dependent on the technology of the mobile photography, it became an issue for them that they could be accosted by a paparazzo at any time. And the paparazzi were clever and they would they they knew that actually they could stage events which would catch celebrities off guard and they'd get a more kind of naturalistic shot or they might even create some sort of drama around it. So there was a really famous incident where a paparazzo came right up to Hollywood star and at that time to use a flash, you had to literally explode a flashbulb and then get another one. Um, so it was quite a violent act. And because lenses weren't developed to the extent that they are now, they had to get quite close as well. So it would literally be accosting them unexpectedly. And I think sunglasses became a very handy means of looking composed, even in those situations, at the same time that they had all of these handy connotations of being associated with modern travel, speed, the capacity to travel to sunny and glamorous locations. I mean, later on, you see them being used um, abundantly in films like La Dolce Vita or something like that as a kind of signifier of this um, mid-century elite. Yeah, and I think that the I think that this connection with the Hollywood celebrity, especially the female celebrity it being a means of somehow um, protecting them from the gaze also had another effect of actually enhancing the idea of how um, special it would be to access those women, to access what lay behind the sunglasses. So they become this little kind of tool of attraction and deflection that celebrities could use, um, maybe they could use it purposely to engage the gaze of the paparazzo or their public, or they could use them as a way of just trying to kind of get a little bit of portable private space. So I think in the book, I talk about sunglasses as a kind of portable backstage region, Mm -hmm. a backstage region being a concept from um, Irving Goffman again, where he, He talks about the need in public spaces for places that you can go backstage. Typically, the toilets are a great place to find a backstage region. But I've said I think sunglasses work as a kind of um, portable version of this. And when you put your own sunglasses on, you do have a very strong sense, I think, of the closeness of something, a frame or a kind of barricade around you. You're very, you know, you can almost feel your eyelashes if you've got long eyelashes, especially, um, fluttering against the back of the lenses. And I think it does give you that that little bit of sense of protection, even to the point that one, I mean, quite a fairly recent study, so moving ahead now in time, um, I think it was 1999, there was a study was commissioned, ethnographic study with some young people about wearing sunglasses and how it made them feel. And they did it sort of by gender, and women reported wearing sunglasses on the beach as making them feel protected from the gaze of onlookers. Mm. So they didn't feel so much like a sex object if they were on the beach wearing their sunglasses. They felt like they were somehow in their own space. However, 
the males of the group interestingly said that they felt that blocking the women's eyes made them seem more like a sex object and invited them to look at and think about the women's bodies more. Mm. And I think there is something really interesting about um, failure to empathise with what is going on with the other person when we're, when we're looking at somebody wearing sunglasses. We are not very good at interpreting what that means in terms of what they can see. And we tend to believe that the person we're looking at with sunglasses on can't see us. We know that that's not the truth because in many situations, sunglasses make it more possible for them to see us because they can behave as voyeurs or maybe just the bright light that might, might otherwise might, it, might make it difficult for them to focus on you is being mitigated by the tint. Loads of the images of sunglasses that we see today of which there are millions, they trade on the idea that we're going to misread this. And it's very interesting how the ways that it does that can be nuanced differently to have quite different meanings. That's really fascinating. We're going to take a short sponsor break here, but more with Vanessa when we come back. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back. Vanessa, I have to say that one of my very favorite anecdotes from your book dates all the way back to a poem that was, um, I guess, released in 1647 by John Cleveland. And it's not about sunglasses per se, but the sentiment very much applies to what you were just speaking of um, in these power dynamics of sunglasses. Um, And also this dichotomy of one hand, how they obscure the face and it creates anonymity, but the very act of this also wearing them also draws attention to themselves because women weren't necessarily wearing sunglasses in, in, in the 17th century, but they were wearing vizards or face masks, um, which were very fashionable. Uh, we've talked about them on the show, so some of our readers might be familiar with these. But the poem that he wrote, it says, they are veiled on purpose to be seen, which which I thought was fascinating. And, and it's really this tension. He's speaking about this tension between concealing your own gaze and also cultivating the gaze of others by way of adornment. And and this is that game that you were just speaking of, that sort of power dynamics that goes back and forth between the looking. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the notion of cool. Um, This is something that you devote great attention to in the last portion of your book, And I know this is a little bit of a slippery question, but what is cool? When and where do we see this concept emerge? And then how did sunglasses, again, get pulled into this construct in the 20th century? Yeah, it is a really slippery concept. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's difficult partly because we use it in popular speech. Um, so much and to mean so many different things. And I mean, there is one very kind of obvious paradox, which I've already alluded to in a way, which is that cool can be used to describe something that's simply up to date. So, or popular even. So if I have, you know, the latest trainers or whatever, that, that they might make me seem cool. But at the same time, we have a sense of coolness, which is more like the majority of what we've been discussing, which is something to do with being in some way detached, um, perhaps even superior to the rest of society. And and actually, you know, when you're thinking from about the 1940s onwards, maybe more associated with subculture Mm -hmm. and perhaps the culture of excluded or marginalized groups where they have developed ways of being and body, but also sartorial techniques of displaying their difference in a way that is proud and aestheticized, but which is often quite hard for the mainstream to understand. So there is this sense of this sort of coolness as a kind of alternative way of being and also a rebellion against prevailing rules or prevailing values. So there is this kind of dichotomy between these two versions of coolness, which although in the book, I do spend quite a bit of time talking about coolness, I am currently working on more ways of thinking about coolness. And there has been a lot of work published, both before and after my book, which looks at different ways of thinking about cool. So there's a lot of 
development around the idea of what coolness is. For example, some people have suggested that coolness is a new form of class system mm. that's largely based on taste. In you know, latterly, sort of in more recent years, probably post 1960s, there's been a huge discussion about the idea that cool has been co-opted by the mainstream, that it's now even a form of capitalism, um, that it's actually impossible to be cool in the way that perhaps some of these precursors might have been. So just to sort of contextualise what I'm about to say in relation to that, but in terms of looking back at the history of sunglasses and the emergence of coolness, you can see it sort of deriving from, and there are multiple origins for coolness but two of the ones that I think are most pertinent thinking about history of western fashion images of cool and how sunglasses have emerged you've got the um, European aristocracy which has this kind of uh, demeanor of nonchalance and hauteur you see that through the way the aristocracy and the kind of wannabe members of the aristocracy behave in court society that gets handed down and developed with dandyism and so on and even through the sort of early days of fashion photography where it's society women looking down their nose at everybody else and there is this kind of legacy of this icy superiority that comes from the European aristocracy at the same time and um, quite different but by no means less influential is an ethos of cool that comes from African culture and religion, which then um, you see emerging and developing into what we might think of as more obvious forms of modern cool through the experience of black American slavery and the cultural innovations of the 20th century that were centered around black American urban experience, in particular, um, the jazz musicians. In terms of sunglasses and the development of this cool demeanour, you're looking at the early 1940s and then through to the 1950s and beyond that, obviously. It's particularly interesting that sunglasses were deployed by these jazz musicians in a way that um, was very pertinent to their particular circumstances. So often having to perform in white-owned clubs to racist white audiences predominantly. Sunglasses were worn on stage by jazz musicians like um, Lester Young and Charlie Parker and um, Miles Davis. And they, I mean, why they chose to wear them, only they know. But the effect of them wearing them and being photographed in wearing them has been pondered on. And, and Essentially, it's really interesting and multiple what the effect of that is. But they were famous for developing a cool demeanour in all kinds of ways as well. The idea of demonstrating at all times this kind of self-composure, mm -hmm. um, self-possession, being able to remain calm in the face of what was, you know, and this obviously comes out from the experience of having to withstand the worst possible kind of treatment during periods of slavery but being able to sort of remain stoic and hold it together and having to do that in those situations for fear of further punishment or further recrimination but by the time musicians experience 
there's a kind of symbolic detachment from the white setting in which the um, in which the jazz was taking place, along with this, um, you know, musical aesthetic that was new, innovative, and pushing the boundaries, and a sartorial aesthetic that was also doing something similar. And that was aligned to modernity in quite a, a strong way. In a very, in, they were very interested in new emerging ways of thinking about the world. So there was, it was a, a lot of things at once. But many of the behaviours of these jazz musicians do inform what we think of as coolness. And this activity around avoiding eye contact and actually presenting yourself on stage as somebody with almost no interest in what's going on around them is now a trope of musicianhood more generally and you know the the connection with the music and perhaps also this sort of sense of alternative and higher knowledge that comes as well from drawing on actually our traditions um of the kind of blind seer or the prophet as well mm -hmm. you know you can't see what's going on around you because you can see something much better and much more important and much more profound. So this idea of a kind of um, the, the invisibility or visibility of black males as performers was being articulated in quite complex ways by the wearing of sunglasses, as well as, you know, providing a way of avoiding the gaze of people in the club. And there was a really interesting study in the 60s of jazz men by a um, sociologist called uh, Becker. And he noted in his interviews with jazz men that they did all sorts of things to avoid meeting the gaze of the audience. And actually, the, what comes through in his study isn't so much the idea that they're in a racist setting, although that's obviously probably still the case in many instances for them at that time, but that actually what they were trying to do was avoid the gaze of like the punters, the customers in the club, because if they met the gaze of the customer, the customer might ask them to play <laughs> what they would consider to be a rubbish song and they wouldn't want to have to deal with them. So it was about avoiding the squares as much as it was about um, ev evading the, the sort of race. So the square, the racists are also square <laughs> and need to be avoided. So they did all sorts of things um, to, to, to sort of put something in the way. And dark glasses are obviously excellent at doing that. And even, you know, again, sort of bringing it up to date, we have a new cliche of the, the DJ in the nightclub wearing sunglasses as well as headphones not wanting to be influenced by what people might ask them to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also emphasizing this mystique and buying in, you know, working with the connotations of glamour and modernity that were there as well in quite a defiant way. Right. They're almost used as a prop, right? Um, which actually leads me into my next question that I want to ask you. Uh, you mentioned the DJ wearing the dark glasses in the club at night. They're not necessary. You know, we're so accustomed to seeing people wearing dark sunglasses in the front row of fashion shows. They, they're almost like costume props now um, for this, you know, expected role that someone is supposed to play. And you actually talk about a, more than a few films in your book where sunglasses also serve this same purpose as a costume prop, but also character development. Do you have any 
favorite examples of the use of sunglasses in film that you might want to mention? That is a hard question because there are so many. Um, and, and one of the things that actually drew me to the topic was the fact that not only are sunglasses so ubiquitous in film, but they're also incredibly commonly used by designers for promotional materials. So, you know, DVD covers or film posters. And I think part of the reason that they do that is because they are capable of conveying so many things at once. Um, a suggestion of, you know, the mystique of a character, what, you know, what might be going on with them. There's also the potential for the sunglasses to reflect something in the lens. And that's a very economical way of communicating visually. So you can have some action taking place um, in the reflection while you also see the actor um, engaged in whatever they're doing. At the same time, sunglasses with their ability to convey these broadly shared and really widely understood aspirational qualities now of this kind of, you know, modern composure, being on top of everything, possibly being successful, possibly being glamorous, possibly being in some way impressively emotionally controlled. Um, those, those things are common within popular film, whatever the character. So they, even where they don't appear much in the film, they're often used to promote the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of, the, one of the images that I think is most interesting to think about in terms of sunglasses is actually a really commonly seen and actually commonly discussed um, by academics, the image of Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's played by Audrey Hepburn. So the idea of Audrey Hepburn in those big black wayfarers, it's a cliche of um, fashion imagery and filmic imagery. But I think it's one of the most interesting ones because in so many ways, um, the idea of coolness and the kind of detachment and control that's conveyed by those glasses is this sort of antithesis of what we expect from Audrey Hepburn as that most kind of um, waif-like and vulnerable of actresses. In Breakfast at Tiffany's, the opening scene is the thing that I think is really engaging. And, and, and actually, it's partly to do with the way that it's remembered. So I'll come on to that in a minute. But in, within the film, the sunglasses work as a sign of her detachment from everything and her attempts to escape Um, entanglements with others. She's trying to escape her um, customers. Um, She's a courtesan. Um, So she's often shown sort of like leaping out of shot, running away. And the sunglasses are very much used. And in the novel as well by Truman Capote, uh, he talks about her habitual wearing of these glasses as this kind of way of evading connection and, and in that regard, you could see her as a kind of flaneurs. So mm-hmm. she moves around the city, taking leave of situations at will and turning up at parties and then not really engaging and then going away again. But also that's undercut by everything else we know about her. And in that opening scene, it, which has become incredibly famous and desirable, it's a still that you know fetches a lot of money um, and is hung on people's walls, you know, quite significant figures in the fashion industry, own stills of this moment. And yet it's the same image that you might find 
on the cheapest possible production available in you know a mass market retailer or website it's got incredibly wide-reaching appeal mainly for women but not only for women and and why that is i think is is partly down to the sunglasses so in that opening scene where she's standing in front of tiffany's and you what you see is her gazing into the window and you see tiffany's reflected in the lenses of her massive brown wayfarers Beyond that, you can also see the vulnerability of the Audrey Hepburn eyes that we know. And it, t- it tells us so much about where this film is going, the, the attempts to kind of shut out um, social life and uh, connections with others, the attempts to sort of harden herself in that environment, but also the glamour of it and also um, ultimately the vulnerability that's, that's going to be shown. So it's there just in that opening scene, but it's also become iconic of a kind of post-feminist desire for success. And, you know, the idea of um, having breakfast at Tiffany's has become something quite different um, from her little uh, pastry in a bag um, where she's perhaps sort of escaping the bad memories of the night before. So, yeah, I think that one is incredible because... It, it's got so much in it about the character, but also which sort of goes beyond some of our, I don't know, sometimes we, we remember things in a particular way. We, rem, we remember the Audrey Hepburn character in Breakfast at Tiffany's in a way that maybe we've actually forgotten to notice that she is kind of cool. Uh, we think of her as glamorous, feminine, elegant, maybe chic, but actually that that sort of that coolness, that emotional distance, is is something that I think makes that image meaningful to women today, and might be one of the reasons why it's still such a popular image. One of the things that I've noted as well um, is that a lot of the reproductions of that image from that film tend to be rendered in such a way that they actually exaggerate certain qualities that up the coolness levels so whereas in the film it's obviously a color film but stills are frequently represented in black and white I think many people would be forgiven for thinking that it was a black and white film Um, and that that drains you know the kind of expressive and emotional content of color out of that um, image but also sometimes that that image and images from around that scene where she's gazing into the window in those big wayfarers, they're sometimes rendered as well. They've been posterized. So they're basically just uh, black and white um, having, you know, the, the look of a, a screen print or even stencil graffiti, which also the coldness of those methods of reproduction sort of enhances that sense of resoluteness and emotional control that actually, if you watch the film, you get a very much more vulnerable and sort mm-hmm. of, I, I don't know, um, unstable version of Holly Golightly. Yeah. For her, they're almost like an implement of escapism, right? Yes, yes. And again, so there is that sort of sense of her being in this kind of little uh, unreachable bubble. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like anyone who's had a hangover, I mean... <laughs> One of the places that you see um, sunglasses an awful lot is on the school run in the morning. Um, They're a handy replacement for a full face of makeup, aren't they? So, you know, she's probably a bit the worse for wear. 
she knows that she'll look okay. And also there is that feeling of being in that little sort of backstage region yourself, mm-hmm. slightly protected. And it is, a, it, it is a really interesting moment in the film because she's really vulnerable on that street. It's 5 a.m. in the morning. It's after a bit of a bad night. She says she's gone there to escape the mean red, but it's an image that's held up as a kind of aspirational ideal for young women, you know, in swathes now. Speaking of aspirational, (laughs) and also at the same time, this notion that you mentioned of this backstage region, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the role that sunglasses play today in the construction of identity on social media. Yeah, so I I do think this is really interesting. And when I first started my research, social media was relatively new. And I started out by looking at mirror selfies. And frequently in the early days of social media, maybe on MySpace or something like that, there would be a very sort of common cliche of those first selfies would be the sunglassed selfie. And, you know, used to maybe give a sense of a more perfect face. I think, I've, I mean, I've talked about that sometime before that you can cover up quite a lot of imperfection in bone structure and so on with a good pair of sunglasses. So I think the kind of increasing sense of the need to live up to certain standards um, encouraged people to sort of buy into the idea of a sunglassed image as a profile picture maybe or as maybe one of many different ways of showing yourself. And I think that's the thing, you know, increasingly, we talked at the very beginning of the talk about this kind of onslaught on the eyes um, modernity brings. And and now, instead of the city, we have the internet, don't we? And the kind of the vast encounters that, that are made possible through that, that enable us to potentially meet the gaze of, you know, millions of anonymous others and so our focus on our appearance and how we may be judged through that appearance, but also our own experiences of gazing at other people. And, you know, people speak of swiping right a lot <laughs> on um, things like Tinder. You know, we, we rush through these images. And so I think that one of the things that's interesting is the everybody is struggling to get people's gaze to stop. So just like Bo Brummel, whose gaze was calm and wandering, we're all like that now. Something has got to get our attention. And sunglasses are still a pretty good way of doing that on social media because they do have, um, you know, they have all of these connotations. They are now a cliche of maybe trying to be cool, which is perhaps something, you know, to be thought about before <laughs> before engaging in this. But But nevertheless, they have that capacity to reference all of those other things and therefore nuance your identity in different ways, thus making you seem a bit different, thus making this image seem a little bit more worth maybe looking at. And I think that that is, sunglasses are one of the techniques through which people can make a very significant difference to their appearance. So it's not that everybody's showing themselves in sunglasses all the time, but that it's, it's one of the tools that we habitually reach for to create that sense of difference that might cause somebody to pause and actually stop the flow. I mean, how the speed at which we go through Instagram is frightening, isn't it? And the, you know, the rejection of all of the effort that's yeah. gone into creating all of those images. 
And I think, you know, it's very similar to me to thinking about how, because I think sunglasses have this sort of poetic ability as well to sort of suggest this type of looking. Um, and in the book, I talk about the way landscape speeds past you on a train and how, you know, it becomes a kind of backdrop rather than a real place, a set of real people, um, but just something for you to sort of move through at speed. And that is a kind of a modern kind of and contemporary sort of detachment um, from the rest of the world that I think is even enhanced, not just by, I mean, you can think about it in terms of taking a photograph of yourself in sunglasses to be shown to others, but it's also about the fact that we are hiding not only behind sunglasses, but also behind screens. Yeah. And so it's like multiple screens and, you know, and also the filter sunglass lenses operate very much as a filter and we use software filters to create a similar kind of effect to sort of sometimes a kind of detaching effect from the reality of what we've actually photographed. And that kind of brings us full circle. Um, we are about out of time, but before we sign off for the day, is there anything else that you would like to mention or impart to our listeners something that you particularly love about this really terrific piece of work that you did, the book? Um, one of the things that has been amazing to me doing this research is just how varied the meanings can be around one object, depending on their context. And I even, and I've developed this in some of the work that I've done since the book. It, there is some of it in the book, but even things like the way light is depicted bouncing off the lenses of sunglasses. And that, that obviously is different depending on the curvature of the lens. So there's been a fashion recently for very flat lenses, mm -hmm. um, almost as if they've been pressed out of a flat piece of acetate. And that, that has a very sort of cold and flat reflection. But if you if you have maybe like the kind of lens you get with a wrap around or maybe with more of a sort of I'm thinking of sort of 90s aviator where they're not exactly wrap around, but they're quite curved to the face in two dimensions. You get these kind of almost like sort of Nike swooshes mm -hmm. appearing as sparkle and reflection that have a whole load of different meanings um, associated with our meaning meanings of light. And I think that's that's one of the things that that's just a small example, because you've got all of those other dimensions of the frames, the materials. And of course, we've had like experimentation with different materials recently, like uh, the, there's a quite a long standing fashion for sunglasses made of wood, which is maybe maybe on the way out. But it's interesting how all of those elements have the capacity within the context that they appear to really create quite deep ideas about how human beings relate to each other. Mm. And ultimately, I think the thing that has really prompted this study and that carries me through and maintains my interest in it is the fact that ultimately it is about the kind of the hope that humans can relate to one another and how they might do that and how they cope really in a world where Actually, our desire to be an individual with a place in a group is probably 
more vexed and more difficult to achieve than it's ever been before. And I think that's what cool, ultimately, I'd say that's what coolness is to me. Vanessa, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. This was incredibly fascinating. Thank you very much. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. And April, this is why we study fashion history, right? It's amazing how something that on the surface seems so straightforward and, you know, sunglasses are so ubiquitous, but it's actually quite complex and laden with a ton of meaning. I love it. Yes. And I was a huge fan of this book, like from the moment that I opened it. It's jam-packed with really rigorous theory and, you know, holds a lens up to sunglasses, (laughs) pun intended, Um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) in a way that I had never really given consideration to. And for me, it really deepened my love of sunglasses. And, And I will continue to relish in rocking my crazy, silly sunglasses for the whole rest of the summer. And, and knowing, a little bit more about what this is all about now. Yeah, and I just want to say, April, that you've really come a long way from our first episodes of Dress when I used to get charged for every dressed pun that I made. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that does it for us this week, Dress listeners. May you consider the ways in which cool is constructed in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions or keep you up to date on the latest in the field of fashion studies. If you'd like to submit your own listener question for a future fashion history mystery, please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com or of course you can always DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday. Bye. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.